I first learned about sex from my father. The lesson came in the form of a brief hallway conversation. I don't think my age was even in double digits at the time. I don't recall who initiated the conversation, though I suspect it was in response to a question I asked. I didn't understand much of what he said. The whole thing sounded pretty unappealing to me at the time. I was sure I would never want to have sex with anyone. I was wrong, of course. I didn't know it then, but the sexual revolution was just getting started. I turned to 16 in 1969, the summer that Woodstock happened. At the time, I was just a kid growing up in the Rust Belt of the Midwest, too young and too far away to attend the event, whose posters promised three days of peace and music. It turned out to be three days of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The sexual revolution changed not only the shape of sexual morals for a large part of the culture, but also our view of the place of sexual desire in human experience. But sex isn't really the problem. The problem is desire and the unrealistic expectations that are born of our desire. The biblical word for this is lust. Sin entered human experience through common desire. Genesis 3.6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The appetites mentioned in this verse are commonplace. The forbidden fruit was good for food. In other words, the tree was edible. The tree was also appealing to the eye. The tree appeared to be desirable for gaining wisdom. It's important to understand that our struggle with lust is much larger than the desire for sex. In the New Testament, the Greek term that's translated lust refers to desire. It can speak of both legitimate and illegitimate desires. In its sinful form, we may fix our desire on many things. It's just as likely to be focused on someone else's possessions or on their success as it is to be an illicit desire for sex. John hints at the full scope of this cardinal sin in 1 John 2.16, when he says, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. As far as John is concerned, when it comes to lust, everything in the world is a potential target. Lust is such a common feature of our culture that it's hard to find a dimension of our experience that's not somehow shaped by it. What is the opposite of lust? What is the virtue that answers the sin of lust and is its antidote? If the essence of righteousness is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, then the essence of sin must be the opposite. To sin is to love yourself at the expense of your neighbor. More than that, it is to love yourself at the expense of God. Sin-shaped love expresses itself primarily in the form of narcissism. It is self-absorbed love. This affection is a distortion of love that, once it has achieved its full effect, actually proves to be an exercise in self-loathing. It is hate masquerading as love, compelling us to engage in self-destructive behavior. Sin promises freedom and delivers slavery. It speaks the language of friendship while treating us like enemies. Sin is a cruel master who promises good wages only to reward our loyalty with hard service, disappointment, and death. For some reason, we return again and again to this false lover and expect a different result. 
The answer to sinful lust is love, God's love, which comes to us from the outside like the righteousness of Christ. Adopting the language that Martin Luther used to speak of Christ's righteousness, we might call it alien love because it doesn't originate with us. It is a love that begins with God and can come to us only as a gift. For the Christian, this greater love is the organizing force for all our other desires. In this regard, love is not so much an emotion as it is a disposition. We might call it a divinely empowered direction for our lives. Our natural love is limited. The impediment of sin skews our interests in the direction of self. Jesus implies this in the second of the two great commandments, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. We are by nature self-protective and self-interested. We're able, even in our natural state, to show some concern for others. We may inquire about the health of others when they're sick or express sympathy when they're grieving. We might even sacrifice ourselves for someone if we feel that the cause is good enough. But the ability to love others to the same degree that we love ourselves is not natural. Our default orientation is skewed toward our desires. We will easily sacrifice the desires of others on the altar of our self-interest, unless something more powerful moves those interests in a different direction. What is true of lust is true of all the capital sins. Change may require discipline, but it doesn't begin with discipline. What is required is a miracle of grace. Redirection is necessary if we're to love others in the way that Jesus describes. But there is only one force powerful enough to turn the tide of our desire so that we are as interested in others as we are in ourselves. It is the power of God, effected by his love for us. That's why the love that Jesus describes begins not with us, but with God. We love others because we love God. We love God because God first loved us. This may sound too mystical to be practical. Do we merely wait until some divine energy strikes us from the outside and makes us care about those for whom we previously gave no thought? God is indeed the source of this love. But it doesn't operate in some hidden mystical zone. The opportunities to show it and the forms that this love takes are ordinary. With this in mind, the basic rule that Jesus lays when it comes to practicing love is simple to understand. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. We don't dismiss our desires, but allow them to be our guide in providing a mirror image. What would we want for ourselves if the circumstances were reversed? Nothing could be simpler. It is the execution that proves the problem for us. We can see it easily enough, but we often don't want to live by this rule. The corruption of our sinful nature further complicates matters. Often, what we desire from others reflects our sinful self-centeredness, making it an untrustworthy guide for our own behavior. An honest evaluation of Jesus' rule soon reveals that to follow it, we must say no to our desires. We don't need to deny that these desires exist. They are what they are, and Christ already knows that they exist. But we must often deny ourselves. Our mistake has been to believe the lie that we cannot live without the things we desire. This was the original lie that was told to Eve by Satan. It is the lie that comes with every sinful lust that arises in our hearts. 
The ultimate answer to the false virtue of lust is not better intentions or even willpower. The ultimate remedy is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is only by the cross that we can say no to our sinful desires. This ability is a gift of grace as much as forgiveness. It is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The denial is ours, but the power is God's. This capacity to say no to ungodliness is natural only in the sense that it comes from our new nature in Christ. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The Christian doesn't lose the capacity to lust. Instead, believers gain the ability to deny their sinful desires. What does this mean for our struggle with desire? First, it means that we should not be surprised to find that it is a struggle. The stirring of sinful desire doesn't mean that the gospel has failed. Second, the general tone of the New Testament when it speaks of sinful desire is one of hope rather than despair. The stirring of sinful desires isn't necessarily the evidence of a spiritual defeat, but may be just the opposite. We should treat these stirrings as the death throes of the old nature as it rails against the spirit. Finally, we should not be so afraid to see our desires go unfulfilled. Countless hours of exposure to marketing has trained us to think that we should have everything we desire. Contemporary teaching about sex implies that we can't be humans without fulfilling our sexual desires. The truth lies in the opposite direction. Our worst fate may not be that our desires will go unfulfilled, but that they will be met. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, C.S. Lewis explains. We are far too easily pleased. This is the problem with human desire, not that we desire too much, but that we desire too little.